Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Faison, also known as the Wizard. What's going on, Faison? Uh, not much. Uh, back in New York now. From was in Denver till this weekend for the conference. Yeah. So C4 invited us to cover their blockchain training conference in Colorado last week. Uh, we had a really great time. There were a lot of awesome talks, and we thought we could do a recap episode of our experience. Um, C4 here stands for Cryptocurrency Certification Consortium. And so they're doing some really interesting work in this space. They describe themselves, and this comes from their from their website, a nonprofit organization that provides certifications to professionals who perform cryptocurrency-related services, recipients of each respective certificate. And we'll talk a little more about these certificates, but uh, recipients of these certificates will have demonstrated comprehensive knowledge in various disciplines ranging from basic cryptography to low-level cryptocurrency development. And also that they establish standards that help ensure the balance and openness and privacy, security, and usability, and trust and decentralization. So do you say uh, consortium or consortium? Uh, what did I say? Did I say consortium? Uh, I think you said I consortium, consortium, but I say consortium. So I was just uh, curious okay. what the correct pronunciation is. Maybe yeah, I don't know. I guess we can, we can say it both ways. <laughs> Maybe it's like an American versus Canadian thing. So the conference they held had some fantastic talks from leaders and topics like Lightning Network, how to incorporate Bitcoin into your business, different uh, legal topics. Overall, it was, really, it was a really well-run conference. And I'm hoping that they can start doing this kind of thing more regularly, if not yearly, because I think the last one was like three or four years ago. Yeah, 2016, I believe. Yep. And so I thought it'd be fun to recap the conference so anyone who wasn't there could learn about it. So we'll start off kind of it was a three-day conference. It went Wednesday to Friday. And uh, I guess we can start off with Wednesday's keynote, which was with Pamela Morgan and Andreas M. Antonopoulos. So Andreas, of course, is of Mastering Bitcoin and Mastering Ethereum fame. We've spoken to him a couple times on the podcast. And he started the keynote off with, with kind of a funny comment. He said, um, being in this space is really weird. And I think he, the point he was trying to make was that every once in a while, there's a massive wave of newcomers who are thirsty for education of the technology. And he wanted to get the point across that because there are so many people legitimately interested in the tech, it's our job to help them break through the noise. And the noise here is, you know, all sorts of things, price talk, ripple talk, all kinds of strong personalities in the space, all the crypto gossip and things like that. All the things that are fundamentally not important to the tech, right? Yeah, and he, he also, yeah, he did make the point that there's the people that are interested in the tech, but it's a good opportunity to help educate those that came in for some of the other reasons. Yeah. Another point I really like that he made was that this is a fantastic moment to start learning and a fantastic moment to invest in educating yourself. So he made the analogy to learning HTML in 1998 and learning mobile in 2007. 
So uh, Faison, what do you think of that analogy? Yeah, I think he's absolutely correct. You know, you and I have had the same discussions about this being a fundamental technology in the way that HTML or inter, you know internet was, and that's why we've chosen our time to invest, or chosen to invest our time in this space with the podcast, some of the learning materials we're working on, and just ramping up on on this tech. Yep, I actually did learn HTML in 1998, and then never did anything with it till years later. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not repeat that, at least. <laughs> well, this is your chance to correct past wrongs, Redeem I guess. It. Yeah, exactly. He also made the philosophical and kind of political point about why the technology is important. So, And I think it's worth uh, repeating. His point was basically that the power behind the technology is that it's open, borderless, immutable, global, accessible, and censorable. Uh, and that's an asset that fits all of these which ends up protecting us in times of monetary and political crises. And to the previous point about noise, I think it's important here to make sure people can, I think the point he was making is that people should be able to verify things themselves and not just transactions, but to ask if that the thing that they're interested in and they're researching fits all those above criteria around like immutability and accessibility and so on. I think we see this you know, the the way he brought it up was very interesting. I think we see this kind of talk on like Twitter and stuff, but yep. it just doesn't come off. I mean, there's reasons why it's important. And I think if you take it seriously, they're very important, but I think they're just kind of like thrown around on crypto Twitter. And finally, oh, one other thing he made a point on was that, so he said, if we, and these are his quotes, if we erode the ability to transact, we erode democracy and that not a space of, uh, this isn't a space of authority, it's a space of knowledge. So what do you think he made by, meant by that last one about not authority, space of knowledge? Yeah, so it lends itself to the ethos of this being a, Bitcoin being a decentralized network where as a participant, you can provide education and training or uh, d- you know dev services, but there's no one who's there to tell you how things should be. And I think in one of his talks, he may have mentioned something about like, this shouldn't be a dictatorship of developers. It's right. really meant to be a decentralized effort and not something where maybe a group of developers are telling everyone how to do everything. Yep. So I think maybe as in reference to that, because you do see that developer dictatorship in uh, some other open source communities. Yep. And not even in crypto, but just other, in just you mean general, like broadly, yeah. right? Yeah. Just broadly. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, I guess from a business owner perspective, he made a pretty interesting point. Basically that all these kind of sub-technologies that form cryptocurrency, like P2P networking, smart contracts, and so on, that will enable you to help your clients and customers. So from a competitive advantage, this is kind of, uh, this is very useful. If you can help your customer out with this technology, that helps put them ahead of you know their pack. That puts you ahead of your pack, especially since this technology is so early. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think I agree with him. It is still very early days in the space. So we're figuring out on the business side what the real needs are versus the hype. Um, you know, a, a lot, maybe two years ago, a lot of the demand was for help with ICOs and a lot of those companies didn't go anywhere. But now you're seeing a lot of legitimate adoption of blockchain technologies. So I think learning the fundamentals will pay off in the long run. Obviously, there's certain, like the Bitcoin blockchain and Ethereum are ones that people are very bullish on. But obviously, we've interviewed some other founders of some other blockchain technologies that may end up being successful. So we don't know exactly what will win, but the fundamentals will carry through regardless of what does win. 
And, you know, on a smaller scale, we've seen similar success getting in early on technologies like Elixir. So hopefully it pans out the same way with blockchain. Yep. And okay, so that was a keynote. And then the next thing, this was pretty exciting. They just kind of like threw this one in as a surprise, I think. But so they made an announcement that Andreas would be co-authoring a new book, Mastering the Lightning Network, with Olaulu Oshuntakun, um, a.k.a. Roast Beef, and Rene Picard, both of Lightning Network fame. This was pretty cool because Andreas had previously authored Mastering Bitcoin and Mastering Ethereum. And I think both those books helped kind of open up both protocols to a wider audience of developers. So I think the plan is for it to be published in Q4 of 2020. So you know, it's about a year away or so. And uh, I think that was pretty interesting. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's really going to push forward the like development and legitimacy of the Lightning Network as the preferred solution for instantaneous payments or like regular two-party transactions versus some of the other solutions that have been proposed or uh, competing networks. So if if Lightning wants to own that market, I think this is a a key step having this sort of legitimacy and ease of uh, entry. Yep. Next talk was a a little shorter one called C4 and its purpose. And so this talk was by Michael Perklin of C4. And he walked us through a little bit of their history and their upcoming plans. Um, this is pretty interesting to hear about, too. So there's two certifications that we kind of already knew about. So the C4 has been active for about five years, and they had launched these two certifications. One, the Certified Bitcoin Professional, or CBP cert, and then the CCSSA, or Cryptocurrency Security Standard Auditor cert and we went into detail with uh, if you want to learn more about those uh i'd go back and listen to our last un- podcast with andreas who went into those in pretty detail but they also announced a few more at this one at the conference so the first one uh was the certified ethereum professional cep the second one was certified lightning network professional clnp and then finally this one was really interesting uh certified legal blockchain professional that's clbp so that that was pretty cool fizon what do you think about these uh these kind of new certs yeah so a couple of uh different thoughts the the ethereum and the lightning ones uh make a lot of sense it's a natural extension to the curriculum that they have uh you know the certified bitcoin professionals so going after the next big targets, Ethereum and Lightning. What else is notable is the emission of any sort of private blockchain or enterprise blockchain technologies. I think in some of the things we've heard Andreas say, he's definitely taken a stance on the immutable and uncensorable being a key feature of a blockchain tech. And so I think them not having anything for private blockchain is pretty obvious here. And then the certified legal blockchain professional... From the perspective of a non-lawyer, I think it's great because, you know, when we were talking to lawyers during the ICO craze about what's legal, what's not legal, what sources of funding are are allowable for different cases, we got a lot of conflicting advice and having some way to assess expertise as a non-lawyer is, is great. So I think hopefully this will set some standard and add a little bit of clarity into the process. Yep. And then they also dived in a little deeper into the CCSS. So this is different from the CCSSA, which is that auditor cert, in the in that the CCSS is applied directly to companies. And there's three levels of security, I guess. Uh, they, they're, they're called secure, very secure, and paranoid. I think they I think they called them. And 
since the CCSS is for systems, they broke down a kind of few clear ways it would be helpful for companies. It gives them one, security guidance, two, clear measurement criteria for auditors, and three, a benefit is that it's free and open to use. So I guess the topics involved for the CCSS are things like key and C generation, wallet creation, key storage, usage, compromise protocol, key holder grant and revoking, third-party penetration tests, and data sanitization. So basically the information systems associated with those would be certified with the CCSS are things like hardware, software, policies, procedures, and training. Basically, you run a crypto company all, and it's an investigation in the quality of you know how well you're doing overall. So, what's your take on this uh, systems level cert? Yeah, so uh, you know we talked to a number of people that were attending the conference for this certification, and what I noticed was uh, it was mostly people that were in organizations that were already involved in blockchain implementations in some way. And so I think this is one where you're standardizing everyone's learned experiences and best practices from the security industry into a set of standards and an approach to building and maintaining these systems, which I think is a great thing for industry adoption. And we'll probably see this one evolve pretty rapidly as time passes Yep. as a result. The next course was the uh, Certified Bitcoin Professional Prep course with Andreas. So this course was great. It was built as uh, prep material for taking the CBP cert exam. We won't go through all the details, but it was a really thorough overview of you know the history of Bitcoin, how the network works, how you can acquire Bitcoin through exchanges, ATMs, mining, incentive structure of mining and things like that. Any other kind of thoughts worth highlighting on this one? You know, we've seen and read a number of intro to Bitcoin type videos and articles. For the time allotted, I thought this was really thorough and succinct. Obviously, didn't go into the technical details. So this was one of my favorite sort of introductory things that I've seen. And I, the only other one I'd recommend really highly is the, the Coursera course by Princeton, which obviously is much longer and goes into more depth. Yep. And then uh, there was a Lightning Network payment channels update with Rene Picard. I think you had some thoughts there. Yeah. So he, he went, uh, you know, it was a uh, technical talk. So he reviewed the Bitcoin transaction protocol, uh, really going into the input and output scripts and the different opcodes and how the payments work. And then he sort of talked about how he took motivation from HTTP when designing Lightning. So he compared, uh, you know, the relationship between payment channels and Bitcoin as similar to like server sent events or WebSockets and HTTP in terms of WebSockets, it's, it's meant to be a request response protocol, but where you have things like uh, server sent events or uh, WebSockets, you make it push-based or bi-directional by hacking the AJAX and the protocol. And in the case of payment channels, they're constructed by deferring the broadcast of some transactions to the future. And Lightning is really about making sure that the correct double spend is broadcast. You're really creating multiple transactions and then broadcasting the correct one. Yep. And then he, he got into the details of the different trans, like commitment transactions and how Lightning is able to work. It's a two of two multi-sig uh, wallet to fund the channel and then got into the nitty gritty of it. But it was a pretty good overview of, of how channels and payments are actually constructed. Yep. I think one of the funnier comments he made in that talk was uh, how 
developers basically have hacked, I think you alluded to it earlier, basically have hacked HTTP in order to get particular kinds of functionality. And there's going to be more and more of that in the Bitcoin space too, as people figure out what they can do on top of it. Yeah. I mean, if you think of HTML, it was really just a markup for scientific papers. Yeah. <laughs> We're well beyond that now. Well, well, well beyond that. <laughs> Next talk was Crypto for Creatives with Stephanie Murphy. Uh, this one was really interesting because it had concrete examples of how crypto could benefit a small business. So some examples she kind of gave in terms of why crypto is useful. One is cash flow. So, you know, we know about this one. So cash flow, a lot of small businesses, they struggle with cash flow because, you know, if you have a client that takes a while to to pay you, that can affect the rest of your entire business workflow. So some terms, I, I think we do like 60 days, but I've heard like 180 days even for, for some companies and working with certain particular types of clients. So that kind of cash flow is, is, uh, is, can be a huge, uh, a huge burden. You just put out 60 days into the universe like that. You should have said, uh, we do one-day payment terms. All our clients pay us the next day. It's been great. <laughs> they all pay us in cash. Now you've, you've set the bar at 60. Oh, shoot. <laughs> um, the other, oh, another example she gave was uh, digital nomad banking issues. Um, so a lot of, uh, you know, you have developers, um, you know, podcasters, there's all kinds of people that are traveling. And in order to get paid, often they it's a huge hassle with their bank. Like if you're based in the US and then you're in Thailand or something, the bank might flag your transactions. So I think she gave a couple examples of like banking shutting down some people's transactions like that. Also some examples of PayPal shutting down businesses that have been doing well. So not even those who are traveling but say you have PayPal as your payment processor and suddenly your business is doing really well. Like say you offer a book or something like that and people buy like a thousand copies in, in a couple of days, PayPal will shut your business down. Uh, oh, sorry, shut down your, your payment processing. So that's a huge pain. And this last one, kind of standing out and differentiating yourself, this is branding yourself with crypto. And the I guess the thing here is like, the word term crypto community is a little weird, but I think broadly you can say that there's a group of people who are very interested in crypto, who are interested in supporting people who have a project to sell within crypto and things like that. Like an artist who, say, does Bitcoin art. There's probably a lot of Bitcoin people who are like, hey, I'll probably buy art from them because they're doing the kind of thing that I would support. So that was kind of interesting. And I think you had gone to a UX and usability uh, seminar as well. Yeah, so I went to a talk called uh, Clash of Expectations. Um, and basically, they went through uh, 10 different uh, UX heuristics um, and basically showed an example of good and bad for that heuristic. And then there was a little bit of audience discussion about uh, what that might look like in the Bitcoin world, because not all of them were uh, examples from Bitcoin-related apps. And, you know, it was things like visibility of a system status, so keeping the user informed of what's going on user control and freedom. So users often choose system functions by mistake. So they should easily be able to undo and redo without having to do everything over again. Good error messages, uh, things like that. Yep. So it's good to see UX being given a stage, literally, uh, at a blockchain conference, because I think it is key to mainstream adoption. Yep. From the Q&A or discussion, did it seem like people were kind of focused on a couple areas within UX that need like solving soon? Uh, not really. It was it was pretty, pretty broad. Yep. So the next one, 
uh, was Bitcoin privacy on and off chain with Janine Romer. Um, so Janine is an investigative journalist focused on topics like privacy and whistleblowing. Uh, I found her presentation to be super interesting. It covered topics like Bitcoin privacy, um, some basic privacy hygiene, like not necessarily crypto related, but the kind of measures anyone can take. And she wore a mask the whole time. She did wear a mask the whole time. That was interesting. Okay, so with Bitcoin privacy, she had a couple like high-level thoughts around it. The meaning of Bitcoin privacy is not necessarily just secret or hidden. It is in a state of, and this is her words, in a state of freedom from intrusion. And basically, she wanted to examine privacy as a goal that's currently achieved by increasing uncertainty and the computational cost in blockchain and traffic analysis. And we'll talk a little bit about what she meant by that in terms of what blockchain analysis meant to her. She walked us through this an example. I thought this was a pretty good, good way to do the, the actual talk, but she walked us through an example of a whistleblower who wants to remain private and how they can use Bitcoin to buy the tools that would help them remain private. And we'll link to some of these tools in the show notes, but there's two websites, privacytools.io and that one privacy site. So privacytools.io gives examples of alternatives to larger software suites we typically use. So there's a private alternative to Google Drive, to Google Mail, and so on. There's even a pri there are private alternatives to Dropbox even. And like I, just off the cuff, you know, like I support this wholeheartedly. I think it's very difficult to get a group. Like if you wanted to do collaborative editing with me and you, we want to do it. And there's like two other people who we want to include as well in like a collaborative doc. I don't know if the private alternative supports that kind of thing. So initially that like it works for personal use cases. I don't know if it works in like, you know, collaborative use cases just yet. The areas of the site basically cover these main areas, hardware, operating systems, web browsers, search engines, email and messaging, proxies and VPN, DNS and VPN providers, and alternatives to Google. And then that one privacy site, what they do is they give reviews of VPNs, jurisdiction, if they do logging, what kind of payment methods they support, and so on. The point she made here was that VPNs are just another ISP. Those are her words. And many of them still track their users in very intrusive ways. One other thing she kind of uh, talked about was on the topic of mobile phones. So she said, I think mobile phones suck. Uh, <laughs> phone numbers are terrible identifiers. Default security of telco accounts is awful. You want to separate your phone number from security functions, things like 2FA and things like that. And I would like to point out that she mentioned that uh, Google Fi is a particularly secure phone provider. Not because of any fundamental security that they have, but just because it's so hard to get a hold of someone in customer service that they're much harder to socially engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Which has a Google Fi. I mean, I've had Google Fi since they were in beta, and I'm perfectly happy with it. Yeah. But customer service is an automated system, so I see where she's coming from, which I thought was fine. <laughs> And also, of course, there's no 100% sure way to prevent the theft of your phone number. So she highlighted some of the tools out there that can get you around like this phone verification stuff, SMS privacy, number proxy, and which all take Bitcoin. She walked us through some exchange options to buy Bitcoin on. I hadn't heard of a lot of these, but basically we all know like 
All exchanges at this point have very strong KYC requirements. So they take your personal information. They want a photo of you holding up your like passport or your and then that uh, gets leaked and then that gets leaked and sold. Yeah, now that's everywhere. So she suggested looking into hodlhodl.com and bis.network, which are I don't know if they're decentralized, but they're both exchanges with less intrusive requirements. And she also gave examples of kind of in-person acquisitions of Bitcoin you can do. So one, of course, ATMs in the U.S. and Denver area. There's Coinstar, Digital Mint, CoinFlip, Bitcoin Depot. In Europe, there's Vardex, Biddy, BitC, Satoshi Point, Shitcoins.club. With the caveat that a lot of the U.S. ATMs still do require KYC. Yep. And because of that, she also recommended some P2P meetups. So this is, you know, you meet someone in person not over the internet. You meet them in person and trade Bitcoin for cash or whatever else you want to trade. Important one for the uh, peer-to-peer meetups is obviously you don't want to get robbed at gunpoint when you show up with all your cash to buy Bitcoin. A lot of police stations have like Craigslist rooms that were originally meant for like people transacting on Craigslist to buy and sell stuff. And there's no reason you couldn't use that for Bitcoin as well. Yep. So the P2P meetup, she mentioned a coin scrum, Room 77, Bitcoin Association of Switzerland, and Boulder Value. I guess that's a Denver-specific one or Boulder, Colorado-specific one. And the, you know, my, one of my favorite parts of this talk was around differentiating blockchain analysis versus surveillance. And they're really different. So she wanted to point out that there's concepts of intent, consent, and transparency that always need to be considered. So blockchain analysis sounds very reasonable. It's the process of inspecting, identifying, clustering, modeling, and visually representing data. And it's something along the lines of what block explorers do, what academics do. And now surveillance is very different. Surveillance is the intent to de-anonymize someone through three main ways. So one, create clusters of UTXOs, addresses, and wallets tie clusters to real-world IDs, and then ID the nature of those movements. So what would you think about that? That was a pretty interesting kind of like dichotomy of blockchain analysis. Yeah, no, I I agree with that uh, split. It definitely makes sense. So overall, very interesting talk that is relevant to today. Yeah, and then uh, after that, I attended a talk called uh, Wyoming's Blockchain Laws. Uh, that was given by the uh, chairman and president of Symbiont, uh, Caitlin Long, who's a lawyer and former Wall Street person who is really working on getting Wyoming to pass a lot of uh, crypto-friendly laws. So the governor wants to make Wyoming the crypto capital of the U.S. or the Delaware of digital asset law. And one of their targets is to make uh, code backwards compatible with law, which I thought was interesting because, you know, when you talk about our smart contracts legally enforceable, the, their goal is to get there. And an interesting note from the talk I didn't realize was uh, Wyoming is already the number two state for business entity registrations. Oh, really? Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with uh, they have uh, pretty strict privacy laws. There's like a whole bunch of stuff that they just don't collect data on. So they, they, they can't possibly report it, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> and then, you know, the highlights of the talk, one was there's three main ways to benefit from Wyoming. One is make it the choice of law for your contracts. You can domicile your company in Wyoming or you can physically locate in Wyoming. And there was a whole bunch of different like house bills and laws that she went through. I won't get into the details of all of them, but one of the big things that they did was 
create this thing called an enhanced digital asset custody regime. And the whole idea is right now, you know, custody is still an unsolved problem. And so they've created this bank-like organization that's allowed to custody Bitcoin for institutions under a number of very specific criteria. So it's available to Wyoming banks and your custody is under bailment. And what that means is that this digital asset custodian can only hold your Bitcoin. They can't loan it out. They can't do all sorts of other stuff that your normal like stockbroker or whatever can do. There's no uh, rehypothecation allowed. Yep. So if they hold 10 Bitcoin, they can't sell 15. And then, you know, there's a bunch of technical stuff that they got into as well. So there's regulatory rules around what a fork is. So the asset definition must directly reference the source code and the version in the contract, which I thought was pretty cool. And if consensus rules change, you can get your coins back. Uh, in other scenarios, if it's not a hard fork, they just have to notify you. Yep. And the custodian is prohibited from benefiting from forks, which is one of those things that you know we had seen with some of the bigger forks earlier, where yep. there was a lot of concern around the forks that certain custodians were choosing to support. Yep. And basically she quoted that this is what is going to get the vanguards of the world to offer uh, mutual funds in blockchain, which is uh, pretty big. So basically the regulatory regime for this custodian is good enough that someone like a vanguard would feel comfortable holding. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. Got it. To set up like a mutual fund. Yep. And... A few other things that happened in Wyoming that I just thought were uh, interesting was they got a bill passed that utility tokens fall under property law, not securities law. So they get state jurisdiction, which allows Wyoming to regulate how uh, utility tokens are going to be handled. Mm -hmm. And there was this whole talk about uh, liens on Bitcoin, which is something I hadn't thought of. But now that you have all these lending companies, you can imagine there being liens against Bitcoin. So they've also defined clear legal framework for how liens uh, should work. So the main point here was that if you own your coins in Wyoming, there's a bunch of legal framework in place for how all these different scenarios are going to be handled. Gotcha. And the last thing I'd want to point out is they've also set up a fintech sandbox in Wyoming. Okay. So you can get up to three years of regulatory exemption as long as you're just in touch with the regulator. Okay. So that's a pretty big deal Yep. um, for getting started. And then, uh, you know, following that, I went to another talk uh, that was not legal in nature. It was probably more philosophical, but it was by Peter Van Valkenburg of uh, Coin Center. And he just discussed... uh, two papers that Coin Center has put out, which is the case for electronic cash and financial surveillance laws intersection with constitutional privacy and speech rights. And it was basically getting into what is and isn't constitutional in terms of uh, like cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I think the other talk that was was really interesting was uh, was called Joining the Lightning Network with Beatrice Lung of Radar. She, she's a project manager at Radar. So this is a great presentation by Beatrice. So basically, this there were a few things. The stuff that she didn't really go over, and she just said that up front, was uh, changes to layer one, like why can't we change the block size, uh, regulatory issues, or a technical deep dive. But she did go over you know, what problems the Lightning Network solves. Um, So I thought it'd be worth just highlighting some of that stuff here because it's interesting and useful. So Bitcoin is a scaling problem. So as activity rises, the cost to transact is going to follow suit. 
it's going to be difficult to be scaled as an everyday payment system. And to operate via global consensus, you know, that's great for Bitcoin security and decentralization, but it also leaves the network slow and costly. So because they can't process transactions quickly, that basically lends itself to a layer two scaling solution. So layer two, the philosophy behind this is that, you know, kind of small and everyday transactions don't have to be stored on the main blockchain. So we can enable cheap and instant payments. It can also be applied to most existing blockchains and there can be trustless cross-chain exchanges. And it also works today. So Lightning, you know, you can set up a Lightning wallet. You know, me and you can open up a channel with each other and pay each other and it totally works. So we walked through the general scaling issues very quickly and then kind of got into the meat of the Lightning stuff right away. So here's some value propositions that Lightning brings. So we get final, private, and fast and cheap payments. There's no mechanisms to reverse payments. Only you and your peer can view off-chain transactions. That's pretty interesting. Payments happen as quickly as wallets can communicate. So that meaning that it kind of just depends on the speed of the internet. Uh, Routing fees are often free or a fraction of the cost. Uh, There's a conditional payment structure. We inherit, okay, this one's very important, right? So we inherit the security proposition of the Bitcoin blockchain. So censorship resistance and immutability, and there's global payments. So as long as the network exists and there's a route, you can pay someone through that route. So there's a few limitations she also went over. One, the routing constraints. So the the nodes have to be online to send and receive payments, which makes sense. I think there is some talk about... I think Roast Beef actually mentioned that there's some talk about offline payments, but I don't really understand how they work yet. Um, But that'll be interesting to learn about. Uh, Another limitation is that users are required to closely monitor sending and receiving capacity to utilize the network. So channel sizes within network are limited depending on your implementation. There's also a limited toolbox for like accounting and treasury management. UI is a little complex. And the time to onboard, like the actual time you have to actually, you know, uh, sync with the main chain, that could that could take a really long time. It could take hours. So those are kind of the limitations of the Lightning Network as it stands. And then we went through the onboarding basics. So we'll link to this in the show notes, but they have a uh, radar tech. They have a really nice onboarding site where you can get Lightning, you can get test BTC from their uh, faucet and you know open up a channel with them and, and so on. So that was really nice. So you basically just download a wallet, set up a password, store a mnemonic fa- phrase, sync your blockchain and Lightning Network data, fund your wallet, open a payment channel, pay an invoice. That's it. The thing that takes the most amount of time is the syncing of the data, as we mentioned before. Another interesting thing about this talk, there are a lot of really good questions in the presentation. Like, you know, what happens on the Bitcoin network when you open a channel? The answer there is basically you see an on-chain transaction, but everything after that you you don't see on-chain. That's, that's kind of the whole point. If you have to do three hops on the nodes to get to your end end payment, like how does that increase time to pay? What are the liquidity requirements? There are a lot of questions around kind of routing and how it works. There was some mentions of submarine swaps and circular rebalancing, and I'm not I'm not super familiar with these, but will be interesting to learn what what those are exactly. Uh, there's also you know some people had some questions around the hub model and uh, criticisms around there. So there's uptime and liquidity management to consider. How well 
you are connected to the network. That's important. There's like, I don't know if there's a reputation score, but it actually does kind of matter. If, you know, what kind of nodes are possible? Do they have to be public? There can actually be multiple types of nodes. There's gossip nodes, routing nodes. Um, there's also private nodes. So that was interesting. So in general, it felt like there was a lot of interest in Lightning, which was cool to see. Yeah, that's great. A, lo- a lot of those questions are actually really good fundamental questions. Yep. The final presentation, I think, not final, it was like one of the, I think it was a Thursday one, uh, it was in the afternoon, advanced lightning applications with uh, CTO of Lightning Labs, Roast Beef. And I think that you um, had some notes on that one. Yeah, so there were, I mean, this was uh, action-packed, I would say. He really got into a number of topics and with quite a bit of depth. But I'll just summarize at a high level some of the uh, things that he covered. So the first was just, this thesis of Lightning provides a simplified API to interact with Bitcoin, where you have no issues of uh, with zero confirmations, confirmation times, or malleability. So I thought that was an interesting point because it, it implies that Lightning should essentially be the default way you're interacting with the blockchain mm-hmm. and the main chain only really being used to settle channels. And then he talked about this will have lower fees, lower latency, better UX, and the complexity abstracted away to let developers focus on their applications. Mm-hmm. And he's the author of the uh, LND library, which does exactly that. Really makes Lightning easy to interact with. Uh, it's what we use in some of the uh, Lightning learning materials that we're currently working on. Next, he talked about these new uh, Onion payloads. So the ideas for onion routing, the packets they use right now don't really carry any metadata and want to update the payload format to have more fields so that it's easier to develop applications that can read that metadata and do stuff with it. I'm not very familiar with onion routing, so probably best to check out his talk once he he posts it. Then he talked about uh, tab splitting with uh, multi-path payments. So tab being like, like a like splitting a tab at a restaurant among friends. So starting with a few limitations of Lightning, uh, you can only directly send or receive the max capacity of the channel. So if you want to send larger payments, you actually have to stake quite a bit of uh, Bitcoin on the channel. It doesn't use the full network bandwidth. And he made the analogy that this is uh, similar to IP before there was packet fragmentation. And... His solution, multi-path payments, basically shards the payments over multiple paths and really increases the capacity. And then he broke down exactly the steps that a receiver has to take in terms of generating an invoice that signals the multi-path acceptance and a few other steps. And same with the sender. They have to know the max capacity of known channels and how they should go about splitting it. And this also allows for distinct payers of a single invoice. So this goes back to the the tab splitting. So if you and I were to eat somewhere that accepts Lightning payments, uh, we could split the tab for a single invoice. That is pretty cool. Yeah. And another uh, very key use case that he mentioned was uh, crowdsource donations. So you can imagine if I want to do a Kickstarter on Lightning, I can create an invoice that has multiple inputs And so the payment completes essentially once that invoice amount is met, but can be composed of uh, many small payments. And this works under the current uh, signed receipt paradigm where you have an invoice and then a pre-image of the payment as a signed receipt that the payment was made. Um, 
So it, the technology to do this already exists. And then uh, there was talk about offline payments, uh, the most famous being the Lightning Network vending machine that didn't require an internet connection. And the idea here is you need to know the value of the payments you're going to receive. So in the case of a vending machine, the prices of the goods you're selling. Mm -hmm. But you can essentially create these uh, deterministic payment hashes. So the machine will basically as a payer with an internet connection, you could look up the cost or the payment hash of a, uh, let's say, a candy bar in the vending machine and then make the payment and that'll generate a certain output and then uh, show the machine that. And the machine without an interconnection would be able to know that the payment was actually made. And finally, he talked about recurring payments, which is you know a big unsolved problem. And his talk was basically about addressing it at the wallet layer, that now that you do have these... Uh, technologies with multipath or uh, the idea that you can essentially with with the uh, invoice and pre-image send push style payments the wallet should be able to then implement the actual recurring portion of that so that was pretty interesting and then uh, finally I attended a talk on uh, smart contract development security and best practices by Stefan Bayer he had a lot of data on uh, different audits um, and vulnerability types and basically, he went through uh, common attack types, uh, some examples of when this has happened in real life, and some solutions. So the main ones he covered was reentrancy attacks, the most famous being the big DAO hack of a few years back, overflow, underflow, uh, front running, and uh, signature replay. And yeah, that was it for me for Friday. Yeah, uh, there were a few other presentations, sadly, that we couldn't make. But overall, it was a really awesome conference. And I hope the Cryptocurrency Certification Consortium or Consortium or Penning Wave Consortium <laughs> puts it on on a regular basis. I think that would be really, really awesome. Yeah, it was a multi-track event. I liked how they broke down the tracks. They had sort of the beginner, technical, professional tracks. And there were often multiple talks that we wanted to attend at the same time but we couldn't, but uh, very high quality talks all the way through. Yep. Hey everyone, you've got Vikram here again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line at Vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M at Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. Thanks. Thanks.